Good evening. Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Aaron Mastani, and this evening I have the immense pleasure of being joined by Barnaby Rain. Barnaby, how are you? I am so well. I'm delighted to be here, and my hair is freshly cut, Aaron. I complained last time that I felt like I looked awful, uh, or rather I'd been told by important people in my life that I look awful, so I'm happy to be here uh, looking good and ready to talk to you. I don't think you need to beat yourself up there, Barnaby. I think you look great. You look great last week. Perhaps the next time we see you on uh, Navarra Live, you'll be wearing a blazer. Here's hoping. Uh, on tonight's show, another SNP figure has been arrested. The cost of living crisis gets worse. Just Stop Oil makes a big break into the media cycle. Do you like that one? And private rail companies are milking taxpayers for cash again. First story. Early this month, Peter Murrell, former SNP chief executive and husband of Nicola Sturgeon, was arrested. These were the scenes at the house he shares with Sturgeon on the day he was taken into custody. Murrell's arrest by Police Scotland came as part of a long-running investigation into the party's finances. He was later released without charge, pending further investigations. Now, another senior party official has been arrested. This is Colin Beatty, the SNP's treasurer and a member of the Scottish Parliament. He was taken into custody this morning. He's being questioned by the Scottish police, also as a part of that same finance investigation. SNP leader Hamza Yusuf had been preparing to give a speech in the Scottish Parliament this afternoon, calling for, quote, a fresh start for the party when the news broke. Journalists were on hand to capture his initial reaction. Well, look, I can't comment a live police investigation. It's clearly a very serious matter indeed. Have you Do you think you should from the party? Have you suspended him from the party or the group? I, I've said already that people are innocent until proven guilty. That's the premise. Will you take him off the public audit committee in the meantime? Uh, look, again, I'll consider that. I'll have to speak to Colin Beatty. My understanding is he's still in the police station being questioned. Uh, clearly, when he's uh, uh, off that, I'll have to have a word with Colin, not about the live police investigation. We can't speak about the detail of that. Uh, but clearly, there are pertinent issues around his role, public audit committee, and his role, of course, as the national treasurer. Are you surprised that he's been arrested? Uh, well, yes, of course I'm surprised. One of my colleagues uh, has been uh, arrested, uh, but uh, you know it's a very serious matter indeed. Does this threaten to derail what you're talking about here in Parliament this afternoon? Uh, certainly, is not helpful. Uh, of course, I wanted to, and I will, I'm still determined, of course, uh, to articulate what my vision is uh, as a new leader uh, and a fresh start uh, for uh, the government. So I'll still do that, of course, at uh, 20 minutes uh, past two, and I hope that uh, we can move on to speak about those issues. But uh, look, I'm not going to take away from the fact that the time of this is far from ideal. Now, the police are obviously investigating past activities in the SNP. Can you guarantee that the party isn't operating in a criminal way right now and since you became leader? Oh, certainly. Uh, I don't believe it is at all. No, I mean, I've, as you know, instructed a review into transparency, transparency in good governance. And of course, with uh, the issue around financial oversight, and I want some external input uh, into that. So there's change that is needed within the way how the party is operated. I'd make that absolutely a police investigation, codenamed Branch Form, is looking into possible fundraising fraud in the SNP. Following several complaints made to the police, it was launched in the summer of 2021. It centres on some £660,000 that was raised specifically for a second independence referendum in 2017. The SNP claimed to have ring-fenced the amount, but filings the Electoral Commission at the end of 2019 showed the party had less than £100,000 in its accounts. That led donors to claim that the SNP had spent the money on things besides the referendum it had been raised for. Also, under investigation is a £107,000 loan given to the SNP by Morrell in 2021. That sum was reported late to the Electoral Commission. 
Two repayments were made to Morel later on, but £60,000 remains outstanding. Today's arrest also follows the police seizure of a luxury motorhome belonging to the SNP. The vehicle, valued at around £100,000, was confiscated from the Dunfermline home of Peter Murrell's mother. It had allegedly been parked outside her home since January 2021. Party sources say the motorhome had been bought for use as a, quote, battle bus during their Holyrood election campaign later that year, but it was never put to use after COVID restrictions were lifted. According to one party insider, the purchase of the motorhome was, quote, not a great idea. The motorhome is apparently an ice move made by Brand, Neesman and Bischoff. Their catchphrase, somewhat ironically, is breaking all the rules. Scottish Labour leader Anna Sawar claimed that SNP leader Hamza Youssef is, quote, not running a functioning government. While the Scottish Tories claim the SNP is, quote, in total meltdown. It's all a far cry from just a few months ago when Sturgeon was being lauded as one of the most effective politicians on these islands. Next story. Almost everyone is getting poorer. The reason why is inflation, with the price of goods increasing by more than increases in wages. So even if you're earning more than last year, you are, in real terms, actually poorer. This morning, the Office for National Statistics revealed that wages, including bonuses, had increased by 6.9% in the first quarter of 2023. Meanwhile, in the year to February, the rate of inflation was running at 10.4%. This graph shows inflation and wages over the 21st century. Of these two lines, inflation is blue and real wages, they're red. When that red line is below zero, you're getting poorer. And as you can see, that red line has been below zero for most of the time since 2008. But in the last 12 months, with inflation running rampant, it's gone into freefall. Now, you'd think that politicians would be asking themselves how to ensure people don't get poorer. But analysts are reporting that the Bank of England will be disappointed with today's wage data. That's because it shows people aren't getting poorer quickly enough. Here's the Financial Times again. The new data leaves Bank of England policymakers with a finely balanced decision on whether to raise interest rates at its May meeting. The slowdown in wage growth, one of the key indicators monetary policymakers are tracking, is more gradual than expected, partly due to revisions to January's figures. Saying the slowdown in wage growth is more gradual than expected means, in essence, that people aren't getting poorer sufficiently quickly. Hurry up and get poor! As a result, this makes another rise in interest rates more likely. The subtext here is this. You've probably lost 5-10% to 10 of your purchasing power over the last 12 months, but I'm sorry, you need to just hurry up and get poorer. Barnaby. Corporate profits are at record highs in many industries while workers aren't getting poorer quickly enough. What do you make of it? Well, you know, Aaron, I'm a historian. And so I'm slightly troubled by all the analogies we see to the 1970s right now, the last period of high inflation in Britain and around the world. This is actually not like the 1970s, because the 1970s crisis came after three decades of rising wages, narrowing inequality, strong unions, delivering expanding public services for a high social wage. And crucially in the 1970s, amid that gradual expanse for most of the population, for working people, falling rates of profit for capital. Our crisis today is very, very different. 
Um, in the 1970s, the choice then amid falling rates of profit for capital and rising demands from a strongly organized uh, militant labor force was either for workers to keep improving their living standards amid a crisis by fundamentally reorganizing production because uh, capital couldn't afford to keep profiting and giving them more or for capital to win that class struggle by restoring rates of profit. Uh, uh, by further disciplining and squeezing labor. That was the fundamental challenge of, of the crisis of the 1970s. It's really important to recognize that because capital won that crisis, won that battle, squeezed labor and transformed our societies, we now face a situation of an inflationary crisis, not amid falling rates of profit, posing fun fundamental questions about the reorganization of production in order to, uh, uh, to to sustain rising living standards. No, no, things are quite different today. Today, we have record profits, literally in many sectors, higher than they've ever been on record in Britain, um, and at the same time, falling wages. Because rather than facing a crisis after three decades of strong labor and movements of oppressed and exploited people gradually expanding and expanding their parts of the pie, instead, we face a crisis after decades of capital eating in to the bits of the pie that workers get. Today, we face a crisis after a decade of austerity and falling living standards, and after three decades in which wages have not kept track um, uh, uh, in the way that they did previously uh, with e economic growth. And so today, we face a crisis in which capital is uh, cashing checks at the bank every day and every week and every month, more and more and more profit, while workers are being squeezed more and more. And so rather than the kind of fundamental crisis of capitalism uh, of the 70s, we face a different kind of crisis where the solutions are really quite easy and simple and obvious. That is to say, you could check you could control, you could limit some of those excess massive profits by controlling prices um, and by redistributing money from bosses to workers. You could do all of that and keep producing. Uh, you could have a kind of simple social democratic solution, uh, some people think. Uh, but the problem is that labor and the movements of the oppressed and exploited aren't strong enough to force it. And so capital keeps, uh, keeps reaping its rewards and people keep suffering. It's not like the 1970s. It's a different kind of crisis in which the solutions are quite simple, quite readily available, but they require organizing because capital won't deliver them itself. Yeah, speaking of profits, I mean, we've all seen recent figures coming out from the likes of BP, Shell, and the tens of billions of pounds corporate annual profits. Water companies are charging, I think, 7.5% uh, more year on year. Council tax now at £2,000 a year on average. Of course, none of this contributes to inflation. It's all about workers. You're not getting poor quickly enough. So inflation is still high and people are getting poorer, but while politicians and the Bank of England say inflation will soon start to fall, when it comes to basic foods, it's never been worse. That's because research conducted by Which Magazine has found price rises in Britain's supermarkets are accelerating. It found that cheese products over the last year saw some of the largest price rises of all, jumping by an average of 28.3%. Meanwhile, breakfast staples such as porridge oats and white bread also increased by 35% and 22.8% respectively. The Times has this detail, which found that the cost of supermarkets' budget ranges were accelerating quicker than their standard and premium ranges. For example, pork sausages increased by an average of 26.8% across the eight supermarkets, but the budget range item as to just essentials went up by 73.5%, taking the cost to £1.40. The value version at Tesco, Woodside Farms, eight pork sausages also went up by 73.3%. We already knew that food inflation for the year to March was 18%, and that's according to the Office of National Statistics. But what this data tells us is that price rises are often larger for budget items. People say, don't buy the deluxe one, go for the cheaper option. Those are increasing the most. Sue Davies, head of food policy at Which Magazine, had this to say. 
Our latest food and drink tracker paints a bleak picture for the millions of households already skipping meals of how inflation is impacting prices on supermarket shelves, with the poorest once again feeling the brunt of the cost of living crisis. While the whole food chain affects prices, supermarkets have the power to do more to support people who are struggling, including ensuring everyone has easy access to basic affordable ranges at a store near them, particularly in areas where people are most in need. Barnaby, it's really striking, isn't it? We have analysts saying that real wages aren't falling sufficiently quickly, while essential foods get more and more expensive. Yes, here's the story here. If you've got wealth and power and you want more of it, you seize on crises and you use them to refashion society in your image. That's why the 1970s crisis was used by capital and its political allies to destroy those forces of resistance to capitalist and imperialist power, which had presented a real threat. Miners, for example, in Britain had founded the Labour Party, had led the general strike in 1926 and had brought down a conservative government in 1974. So what did Thatcher do? She got to work uh, on a plan that Ridley Pran from 77 to destroy the miners. And, and, and they smashed miners and so destroyed a central agent of class politics in Britain. It wasn't just organized unions. It was also forces like the Black Liberation Struggle that had presented real challenges to existing uh, state and capitalist power, uh, increasing spirit of worker militancy. And so those forces were all aggressively crushed uh, in the resolution of the crisis of the 1970s. In 2008, we had a banking crisis, a crisis caused on Wall Street, not uh, not uh, by workers' wages. And it was extraordinarily uh, refashioned and reimagined uh, as justification for shrinking the social wage, shrinking the public sector, shrinking benefits. Then in 2020, we face a crisis from a pandemic and a war in Ukraine, and that's used now to further shrink real money wages. It's class politics. Um, it's crises caused by capitalism and imperialism, not caused by workers, but seized each time by capital and its states as opportunities to hammer workers in order to restore restore or increase profit rates. We should recognize that those with wealth and power organize to defend their wealth and power, and they do so in order to smash those who might challenge them. They're not going to give you something for nothing. Absolutely. Uh, you look, for instance, some of the details on that time story, of course, behind a paywall, but you can feel free to go there. And if you have a time subscription, you can read it. As the cheese up 80% in one year, budget sausages up 75% in one year. Uh, and at the same time, we have record profits going to the 1%. It's quite extraordinary. And that is the face of class war, right? As the cheese going up 80% in one year and politicians and the Bank of England fundamentally wanting you to get poorer. Next story. The World Snooker Championships are currently being held in the Crucible Theatre, Sheffield. On Monday nights, as two simultaneous matches in the opening rounds were taking place, this happened. Oh dear, we've got a protester. We've got a protester who's throwing power on the table. Oh, I've never seen the like of this before. He's been roundly booed by the audience, but play is going to have to be suspended while they deal with the mess on the table. Never seen the like of this at the Crucible. How extraordinary. Now these orange powder all over the table. Play will have to be suspended. I don't know how they're going to sort this out, Dave. Well, look at this. I don't know what he's protesting about. Frankly, I don't care. Thankfully, no one was hurt. You could see a second Just Up Oil protester in that video who tried to glue herself to the other table. That match resumed 45 minutes later, but the one covered in orange paint powder had to be cancelled, though it's going to be picked up again tonight. The activists, a 25-year-old man and a 52-year-old woman, are both in police custody. 
in the wake of Just Stop Oil's Action Extinction Rebellion, has released this statement. So we are coming to Westminster because that's where the power lies. And the government has until 5pm on Monday, the 24th of April, to agree to enter negotiations about the two collective demands that we have presented to them today. They've had decades to do something. Time is up. If we don't get a response, at 10 a.m. on Tuesday, 25th of April, Extinction Rebellion will build an unprecedented coalition, stepping up our campaigns in the weeks and months ahead along three pathways. That is to picket, to stand in solidarity with the strikers, to organize locally, and to disobey. This is the work we have to do, and this time we won't be alone. Now, Extinction Rebellion, in coordination with Global Justice Now, Don't Pay UK and the PCS Union, are demanding an end to all new oil and gas licences and funding. They've also demanded that the government create, quote, emergency citizens' assemblies to tackle the climate crisis. Working with over 200 climate organisations, including Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth, Extinction Rebellion will hold four days of protests in Parliament Square, London, from this Friday. Barnaby, it's certainly grabbed people's attention, hasn't it? Yeah, and it's important that it does, because in 2020, weather-related disasters forced 30 million people to flee their homes. You know, we've got a Tory party whipping up a panic about migration, while migration numbers are rising through the roof and going to rise further because more and more of the world becomes uninhabitable. Catastrophic wildfire events destroy communities from Canada to Siberia to Turkey and Greece. Uh, we had droughts from South America to East Africa. We had catastrophic flooding. This is just in the last couple of years in Bangladesh, China, Germany, South Sudan. Um, so the effects of 1.2 degree warming, as we currently have, are being felt very viciously. And in the future, we're on track the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change warns, uh, we're on track for 10 million deaths each year. It's so dystopian, people can barely grapple with it, barely imagine it. I think people are kind of paralysed by it. It's good that not everyone is. 10 million deaths globally each year in the 2030s just from heat stress, while in the 2040s we'll have drought affecting 30% of global cropland. So that's going to cause famine, it's going to cause severe uh, problems for the world's food supply, leading of course to political instability, conflict um, and deep problems. By 2070, a third of the world's population could be exposed to temperatures currently only found in the Sahara. So we're on track for this highly, highly dangerous reality in which it will be hard to get food, in which huge numbers of people will be moving. And of course, in the logic of a fossil imperialism, many of those who will be affected are across swathes of the world that haven't actually been causing the pollution for centuries, the pollution which fueled Britain to global capitalist dominance and now fuels America to global imperial dominance. Many billions of people across the world who have been impoverished by that process will now be flooded and, and undergo droughts uh, and be forced to, to leave their homes because of a process where profits have piled up in London and New York. It's very good that unions are involved in supporting these protests, understanding that working people and the poor everywhere pay the price for the decisions of the wealthy. Just Stop Oil, the name might sound like they're calling for some immediate drastic change. But in fact, if we stopped new oil and gas exploration, as they're asking, We'd still have eight years on current uh, oil and gas exploration projects to transition to a purely uh, green and sustainable economy. It's kind of mind-bendingly reasonable. Instead, fossil fuel companies are subsidised by the British state to the tune of £12 billion a year before COVID. That's the worst in the G20. Why? 
Well, part of the answer is that ministers are in bed with fossil fuel companies. Rishi Sunak's net zero minister, Graham Stewart, who said oil and gas are, quote, good for the environment, receives campaign donations of £10,000 from a fuel company. So the world burns while a few people pocket some immediate cash. And here's the tragedy. It's a mix of immediate corruption, a bit of cash, some bungs for the wealthy, uh, while people far away, especially in the global south, suffer and die, uh, while the logic of this system of capitalism is an expansionary dynamic, always producing more and more and more commodities to stay competitive, which exhausts people in endless overwork, when we could be living lives of, of, of leisure and care, endless overwork, exhausting people while destroying our planet. It's a system that's hurtling towards disaster, peopled by ministers, governments all over the world, and not least in Britain, uh, making the problem even worse. Barnaby, I have a question though for you here, which is, look, the counter argument is, this is like a, a quote unquote blue collar sport, you know, it's not um, polo, it's not... Um, it's not a pastime which clearly like the, the elite gen, generally indulge in. It's a blue-collar sport and it's just people going out for an evening's entertainment. I don't believe this, by the way, or I think this rather. I think what they've done is entirely justified and they're highlighting a very important issue. But the, the argument is that strategically, this isn't really the way to win people over. We'll talk about that more in a moment, but what's your read on that? Well, I think that it's very important, as I said, that... Um, just Stop Oil are coordinating with a trade union in launching uh, the, this protest. And I think it's very important that the spokesperson you just had on uh, talked about supporting strikes. Look, the way that the right prospers is by persuading people who suffer and struggle as their wages are cut, as their living conditions are attacked, that they should punch down, that they should attack others struggling, because it's just inconceivable to imagine real changes in the organization of the social world so that we all are able to live lives of care and leisure. And instead, it's easier to think that we can just punch those beneath us. And so, of course, we have the way that we organize politically not to give that kind of ammunition to the right. Of course, protest has to be tied to uh, the Barbados and of the Maldives and countries all over the world pointing out that they, the global poor, are paying the price for emissions uh, whose benefits were felt very far from them. And similarly, close to home, it has to be pointed out that when people block roads and ask for homes to be insulated, as they did uh, uh, recently, that came just before massive rises in energy bills. So if only we'd insulated homes, millions of working class people would have been uh, able to pay their energy bills and also the planet would have been helped. The state will try to ensure and fossil fuel companies and the right wing press will try to ensure that we bicker amongst each other and turn snooker fans against uh, against climate activists. But I think that it's important to raise awareness, raise attention, whether it's in splashing paint on paintings or on snooker competitions, uh, to raise awareness of the climate crisis so that people can't avoid talking about it. Um, and, you know, just as ordinary fans of horse racing weren't being attacked when suffragettes threw themselves at horses in order to demand votes for women, um, I think that uh, ordinary snooker fans aren't being attacked by moment's disruption. But those same snooker fans are being attacked when they can't afford to pay their heating bills and then face massive population movements and massive increases in food prices because the climate is breaking down. Those are the things that destroy the lives of snooker fans, just like they destroy the lives of everyone else. The events of the last 12 months, if nothing else, have really brought all of that together as an analysis. You know, we've seen, I think, the, the cost of gas has gone up by around 160%, electricity by about 65%. And fundamentally, an addiction to fossil fuels is going to mean uh, declining living standards. We need to decarbonize as quickly as possible, not just from the perspective of climate change, but also energy security. Now, of course, that does mean a lot more renewables. It's also, I think, going to mean more nuclear. Now, you might disagree with that. 
If you do disagree, how are we going to decarbonize? Put those comments uh, in the chat. And then finally, a very quick point in terms of the snooker, it's important to say this was right at the start of the game, zero frames all, nobody was put off their game, and I understand it's a minor disruption for those watching, but fundamentally, given the stakes, given the fact we're looking at maybe 100 million climate refugees at the midpoint of the century, clearly very small fry. I suppose the big question is, how can these broader issues be articulated? You've got the attention of, of the people watching the snooker and far more besides. How do you convey the broader political points and, and, and the necessary political program? I have to say that um, just up on Extinction Rebellion through that uh, video that was uh, relayed through uh, legacy media afterwards, seemed to do a pretty good job. As usual, the media today has been full of pundits asking, why the snooker? Paul Bell from Just Up Oil appeared on the Jeremy Vine show where he explained the action. It wasn't you on the table, was it, Paul? No, it certainly wasn't. I'll just introduce myself. So my name is Paul, <laughs> I'm 22, and I'm demanding that the government stops new oil, gas and coal because I'm a climate scientist, I'm a PhD student studying high-impact climate events and investing in new fossil fuel projects okay. is scientifically proven to be complete and utter madness. Okay, but why disrupt a snooker tournament? Yeah, I mean, honestly, great question, right? Like, why? You know, why would a 25-year-old student and a 52-year-old woman who's like works at a museum, why would they do this, do this incredibly dramatic event, right? I think the answer's in the name, right? Just stop oil. You know, so last year, we saw 33 million people displaced by climate-induced floods in Pakistan. That is got, it's just the got equivalent nothing of to half do. the UK it's got nothing, population. It's got nothing no, 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 to do no, with a snooker. No, 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 sorry, you, what, you're just... the equivalent of half the UK population. It's, it's got nothing right? to do with a snooker. Half the UK population were displaced from their homes. Just imagine the yeah, level but it's of got nothing to do with the snooker. Have. In that context... In that context, our government is still investing in new oil, gas, and coal. That is completely criminal. But you, and in you fact, may be right, but you do not listen. use this word lightly. It is genocidal. It's got nothing to do with the snooker. It's got nothing to do with the snooker, Jeremy. That's the right answer, and yet you still don't get it. It's not about big snooker. It's about big oil. The forced installation of prepayment meters by energy retailers was a practice that not many people knew about. That was until a Times undercover journalist working for Avato, British Gas's debt collector, brought the shadowy business to light. Recording this. Hello, it's British Gas or Gas Supply. We're here with a court warrant. Can you please open the door? I've got lots of emergency for you. It's the exciting bit. I love this bit. On some of the coldest days in recent weeks, I was in teams of either four or five men, breaking into families' homes and force-fitting pay-as-you-go meters for British gas. The debt collection teams are deployed after courts sign off warrants on behalf of the energy firms. The companies are meant to screen for vulnerabilities. However, we broke into this home, even though a neighbor had told us there was a single dad and three children living inside. We are not publishing footage from inside this home to protect the privacy of the family. The family was out, but on the living room floor there were toys for young children, Peppa Pig figurines, a small pink bicycle and a mini guitar. In the kitchen, there was a child's Ventolin asthma inhaler and eczema cream. The debt collector leading the team 
did not seem phased by the signs that children were living in the home. For the benefit of court recording, uh, no inside property, uh, dog has been contained by dog handler, uh, no risks, no vulnerabilities uh, on site, uh, ending court recording now. The British gas engineer explained how he thought the family would probably get cut off from their heating. He said the account was in the generic name of occupier, so they might not automatically be sent a top-up card. You won't get sent a card, the debt collectors sat on the family's sofa and one messed around with the children's toys. After almost two hours, the job was done. The debt collector leading the team disappeared for a while and the team waited for him outside. What were you doing? Toilet. Oh, right. The same agent offered me tips on judging a customer's vulnerability. But if they're just saying, oh, I'm a single mum and I've got three kids and that, that's, that's not a vulnerability. Right. It is a vulnerability, but I'm, uh, I'm a bit old school and a bit hard-nosed. I'm a bit old school. I ain't old school, you're just an asshole, mate. Uh, the undercover journalist also reported this. Before starting as a debt collector, I had four days of video training describing the warrant process. The Avato trainer said, quote, Honestly, it's a little bit cheeky. Basically, the government says you can't disconnect residential customers. So what we do is install a prepayment meter, and then if they don't top them up, they self-disconnect. So we don't actually disconnect them. It's a bit of a laughable loophole. Asked by one of the new recruits whether we would stop force-fitting a meter on the day in exceptional circumstances, the trainer said that person could tell you that their entire family of 50 were in a horrific aeroplane crash and were the sole survivor, and we'd still be saying that's a shame, but we're changing your meter. But following that shocking report, the force fitting of prepayment meters was suspended while Ofgem investigated. Well, now the energy regulator has concluded its inquiries and released a code of practice for the retailers. And it's incredibly weak stuff. Jonathan Brearley is Ofgem's chief executive. He appeared on the Today programme where he explained the new code. We've been saying for some time that companies need to up their game in the way they look after vulnerable customers across a wide range of aspects, and this is simply one of those. Now, what I'll describe is what happens for anyone who is going through the process of installation of a prepayment meter. So before it happens, companies need to make sure that they make at least 10 attempts to communicate with that customer to understand their circumstances. Secondly, for all customers in this process, there needs to be a site welfare visit, again, so companies can understand the circumstances the customers are in. When this process is happening, there needs to be tighter monitoring. So we don't want to see some of the unacceptable behavior that's been surfaced by the Times and by others and been highlighted by citizens advice and others over the last few months. And that includes close monitoring of agents through video cams, for example, or other ways of recording their behavior. And equally importantly, after the prepayment meter is installed, those families need to be looked after. That means that prepayment meter should have 30 pounds of credit to make sure people don't go off to buy quickly. There should be a smart meter installed so that companies can intervene where customers are not using the energy that they need. And there needs to be aftercare to make sure all those families are able to be looked after. But coming on to who this applies to, we've said there is one category, for example, those over 85 or those with very serious health conditions that depend on energy, there is an outright ban. So you simply cannot install a prepayment meter under those circumstances. But there's a second category where we say deep welfare checks need to be made both on your ability to use the meter and on your financial vulnerability and your ability to pay for your energy. 
So the Code of Practice bans the forced installation of prepayment meters in the homes of people who are over 85 or who have conditions that prevent them from being able to operate the meters. It also requires agents working for the retailers to wear body caps. And for people it terms, quote, medium risk, the retailers will have to carry out a vulnerability assessment before forcing a meter on them. People in that category include those aged between 75 and 84, parents of children under five, pregnant women, and people with Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, schizophrenia, learning difficulties, and some respiratory conditions. But why does Ofgem think these people are less in need of protection than 85-year-olds? Here's Jonathan Brearley again. Let's take that second group and let's take what it is we are worried about. So the big worry about prepayment meters is that people cannot be kept on supply. So either because they can't operate the meter or because they cannot afford to top up their meter, they're left being cut off from their energy. What we're saying to companies is if there is a risk of that, so if you look at the circumstances of the family or if you look at their financial circumstances and there is a risk that they will be cut off of supply, you have to assume it is not safe and practical to install and therefore you should not install a prepayment meter. So what we're saying in that second category is consistent and continuous supply is necessary for that group. So that's a very, very high bar. And if suppliers don't meet that, then we'll tighten this further. Okay. And one thing I should, should say, Michelle, is in addition to um, the code of practice we're launching today, this is going to be turned into mandatory rules and regulations for the industry. And when it does, there'll be a further period to reflect on how this has worked. And if we need to change it, we'll change it again. Last year, energy firms force-fitted meters into 94,000 homes. The new code from Ofgem is only voluntary, and force-fitting meters on the vulnerable has been banned since 2018 anyway. But that didn't stop the suppliers from doing it. In response to the new code, Energy Minister Grant Shapps said this. The abuse of prepayment meters by energy suppliers in recent months has been disgraceful, and I have demanded urgent action from the regulator and suppliers to make sure we never again see vulnerable households treated this way. This code of practice is a step in the right direction. I now want to see these words put into action as we have unfortunately learned that codes and rules alone are insufficient if they're not adhered to and enforced. It's worth pointing out that people with prepayment meters pay more for their energy than anyone else. That's because the suppliers charge them for the meter and its installation, but also add a fee for managing them. Next story. You've probably heard the phrase capitalism for the poor and socialism for the rich. Think taxpayer-funded bailouts to the banks in 2008. Banks screw up, taxpayer steps in and saves them, banks continue to make mega profits and pay massive bonuses to a tiny elite. Well, the same is now happening in Britain's privatised rail industry. This is Transport Secretary Mark Harper. Today, the rail union, the RNT, has revealed that he allowed two private rail companies to be paid £82 million in dividends in 2022. At the same time, both companies were indemnified by the taxpayer regarding lost revenues resulting from industrial action. In other words, the taxpayer footed the bill. The two rail groups in question are First Rail Holdings Limited, the holding company for first group franchises, and Govia Thameslink Railways, which runs the UK's biggest franchise. Last year, First Rail Group reported dividend payments of £65 million, while Govia Thameslink paid £16.9 million to shareholders. First Rail Group is responsible for the Avanti West Coast and Trans Pennine Express services, both of which have been the subject of massive controversy after cancelling hundreds of services. Here's the Scotsman from January this year. 
of anti-West Coast cancels about one in five trains as train reliability hits record low. Train reliability across Britain reached the worst level on record in recent weeks. That's because of industrial action. With Avanti West Coast cancelling the equivalent of about one in five services. Of course, the government decided to extend the Avanti West Coast contract. What else would they do? Is the Tories after all? So we have a situation where rail companies provide a terrible service and want their workers to get poorer in real terms. Yet the taxpayer has to foot the bill when industrial action happens. Then they get the contract extended by the government essentially being rewarded for failure, and proceed to pay out millions of pounds in dividends. It feels more like an organized racket than a sensible way to run vital infrastructure. Now, fortunately, it turns out I'm not alone in thinking that, with the RMT General Secretary, Mick Lynch, saying this. The DFT is now little more than a representative of big business, geared to turning tax revenue into shareholder dividends. If you're a private rail operator, it doesn't matter whether your problem is unpredictable passenger revenue, costly train leases, or industrial action. The Secretary of State is there to help, opening the public purse and emptying it into shareholders' pockets. This system is not operating in the interests of passengers, railway workers, or the taxpayer. It is clear that only full public ownership of train operation in this country can save our railways from being looted by this gang of unaccountable Spivs. Only Mick Lynch could drop heat like that. Uh, I said at the top of the show that we have big problems across things like water, rail, mail. Uh, but I think rail is broadly viewed as the consensus that actually, if you did need to bring something into public ownership, that would be the cheapest. You simply wait for the franchises to elapse. So while I don't have much confidence in Keir Starmer bringing many things into public ownership and in his defense, he's quite open about that, right? He says very frequently, actually, we're not doing that anymore. On rail, they still maintain, they support public ownership. And I'm inclined to believe that a little bit because it won't cost very much. It'd be quite cheap. And the arguments for privately owned rail operators really don't exist. Next story. Jeremy Corbyn has appeared on LBC's Cross Question where Tory MP Nick Gibb made a spectacular claim. According to Gibb, Britain's economy is, quote, doing well under the Conservatives. Here's how Corbyn responded. Nick, I wonder which planet you're on at the <laughs> moment, mate. I really do. Inflation, well over 12%. Food inflation, much more. More food banks in this country than branches Jeremy, of McDonald's. Jeremy, you're your pen. Sorry, right the it's a very good pen. <laughs> given to me by a trade union. Um, and... Um, you're suggesting that somewhere the economy is doing well. Well, if you ask anyone who is worse off than they were 10 years ago, ask anyone like a teacher or a rail worker, a mail worker, what's happened to their wages, they won't be very, very happy. And you cannot say that wages have caused this inflation because wages have actually fallen over the last 10 years. And if you actually got round the table with all the unions involved in the current disputes and paid them properly, you would actually have more money being spent in the economy, which would help investment anyway, and you would have a lot less poverty around and a lot less people claiming universal credit or top-ups in order to get through. Now, for the Labour Party, I think the important thing is to offer a real alternative. And I saw an analysis in the iPaper last week which said one of the problems was many of the public don't fully understand what Labour's economic strategy is because they're so busy presenting themselves as being very good at managing the economy. Surely we've got to look at the structural problems. The structural problems are 
historic lack of investment, structural problems are, historic lack of training, historic problems of underpayment of teachers and medical workers, many of whom, if they can, emigrate or they go and do something else, even though they've been trained <coughs> at public expense. You put forward that case in 2019. I put forward that case in 2019. Yep. Of course we lost the election, I fully understand that, but there are many reasons, one of which was... Um, issues around Brexit, I'm sure you'd understand. Um, but individually, interestingly, the policies, particularly ones on public ownership of um, mail, rail, water and energy, were actually all publicly supported and still are. I think what we need is a much clearer alternative in the election. Jeremy Corbyn on top form there. Good to see him again. That chap should, uh, should think about running a political party. It um, you know, might get some votes. Interesting that he's pushed back by Indale saying, well, you put that forward in the 2019 general election and now you lost. True. Uh, but what's often forgotten is that Labour in 2019 actually won a majority of voters under 65. So a majority of the working age population voted, or not a majority, a plurality, more voters voted for Labour than the Conservatives at the 2019 general election who were under 65. Now, I'm not bashing older people. Uh, but I think that's clearly an expression of the economy not working for working age people really since 2010. Uh, we've had the triple lock on pensions. Generally speaking, pensioners have paid off their mortgages. So they've been insulated from some of the issues around, for instance, rent, around childcare, around public services, and of course, as we've talked about on the show already, uh, declining real wages. And already that has led to Labour beating the Tories among, amongst the working age population. So this idea that Labour now need to jettison everything that they talked about in 2019, of course the conservative media say that because they don't want their little pension pots being raided, they don't want their little piggy banks being touched, and they certainly don't want their mega mansions in London uh, being potentially subject to a mansion tax. What did you think about that, Barnaby? I thought really it showed Jeremy Corbyn at his best, very sensible, very clear, and you can see why the establishment went after him. Absolutely. And I think it showed the kind of crisis of representation that we have in politics now, where uh, huge numbers of people protested on Britain's streets, strikingly the biggest protest recorded in British history a couple of years ago uh, for Black Lives Matter, after huge numbers of people protested for, uh, as part of Extinction Rebellion. Um, after now huge numbers of people are on strike demanding higher wages. People want a society, very many millions of people want a society in which uh, people can live in dignity, the climate is protected, uh, and, and our living standards are protected. Um, and there's very little political voice for that. You know, Nick Gibb, the Tory minister, is right to say that the economy is doing well. It's doing well for some people. It's doing well if you're sat around Rishi Sunak's kitchen table, where um, uh, Rishi Sunak's wife, uh, invests in a childcare company. Um, uh, the, 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 that childcare company is then listed on a government website as supporting a policy which will ensure that £600 extra flows to companies uh, like Kuru Kids, which Rishi Sunak's wife is invested in, from the state in a special subsidy. And Rishi Sunak then doesn't tell anyone publicly that he has that investment. So if you're Rishi Sunak designing policy that, that funnels money to companies that your family's invested in, the economy is doing pretty well. If you're a Tory minister, for most of them, uh, the economy seems to be doing pretty well. The problem is that for most people, that's just not the reality. And the problem is that the Labour Party, writing ads that accuse Britain's first Asian Prime Minister of complicity and child abuse, they'd rather do that kind of gutter politics than actually address 
uh, the, the, the basic structural challenges of British capitalism, which is a situation of stalling and low productivity for decades, a stalling and low social wage cut by austerity, stalling and low wages being attacked now amid inflation, uh, while profits soar for a few. Um, those are the basic crises of British capitalism. It requires big thinking to solve them while also addressing the climate emergency, and the Labour Party is just not really very interested in that. It is remarkable, isn't it? You talked about the crisis of uh, representation. Somebody making such anodyne, clear points, which, as we know, on a sort of policy basis, really resonate with the British public. I mean, it's 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 not puzzling why it's happening. It's very clear why it's happening, but it's extraordinary that it's happening nonetheless. You know, we hear frequently from the media and the permanent political class that, oh, the British public are very conservative, which doesn't, of course, explain that until the 1910s, there was a Liberal Party that was doing very well. Or the, the Prime Minister who's won the most elections is Harold Wilson, who was a Labour Prime Minister. Or perhaps the most disruptive Prime Minister in this country's history was Attlee after 1945. They don't mention that because, of course, we're conservative. Um, which is also just not true, because if you look again at the policies, as Mehdi Hassan likes to say, show me the receipts for what you're saying. When it comes to public ownership of rail, a majority of Tory voters back it, let alone the public. Same with regards to water. Um, I believe it's the same with Royal Mail. I think I saw a poll recently showing around 60% of uh, Tory voters would like to see the Royal Mail in public ownership. So this is just not true. It's a fallacy to say that the British public is conservative. Actually, on a whole host of economic issues, the electorate is well to the left of both Labour and the Conservatives. And there's a reason why the media police the conversation around that and stop politicians reflecting the wider public view. Before we wind up, there's a court case kicking off in the US tonight. It involves Fox News and the company Dominion and is expected to be one of the juiciest trials in media history. How does that sound? So what's it all about? Dominion is the manufacturer of voting machines used in 28 states during the 2020 presidential election. After Donald Trump lost to Joe Biden, Fox News began airing claims that Dominion had rigged the machines against the former president. Now, a judge has already ruled those claims were false. And now Dominion is suing the right-wing news network for $1.6 billion, claiming the network knowingly broadcast false claims about its machines. And that's after a trove of text messages between Fox News anchors, senior officials, and producers emerged which directly contradict what was said on air. Some of them are also just embarrassing and not very complimentary about Donald Trump, the man the channel seemed to worship when he was president. There's this one in particular from host Tucker Carlson sent after the Capitol riots in January 2021. We are very, very close to being able to ignore Trump most nights. I truly can't wait. I want nothing more. It does feel very close. I imagine things will get nice around mid-February. This is when Trump would be gone. I hate him passionately. I blew up at Peter Navarro today in frustration. I actually like Peter, but I can't take much more of this. Top executives Rupert and Lachlan Murdoch are expected to be called as witnesses, as well as Fox hosts like Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity. At Barnaby, this looks like it's going to be top viewing, doesn't it? Huh. Well, there's two stories here. There's a legal story and a political story. Uh, you know, on the one hand, there's a worrying undercurrent here of a legal story where the right in America is interested in 
um, uh, beefing up libel laws uh, in order to restrict and restrain the press. So you've got two justices on the Supreme Court, Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch, one of them, Clarence Thomas, fresh from uh, from all the corruption of his uh, hanging out with billionaires, um, uh, uh, influencing his thinking, perhaps. Um, uh, and they're both interested in reversing a decision from decades ago, uh, the Sullivan decision, where the Supreme Court overturned an Alabama judge who called his job white man's justice, who'd awarded damages to a cop suing the New York Times for opposing segregation. Sorry for all those details. Basically, that's the Supreme Court previously saying that newspapers should have the freedom to oppose segregation, even though Alabama judges didn't think so. Some conservative members of the Supreme Court now want to undermine that. Ron DeSantis, a presidential frontrunner, has talked repeatedly of tightening libel laws to limit the press. So there's a worrying dynamic here, absolutely, about attacks on the free press um, uh, in order to protect mostly the powerful. But of course, on the other hand, there's a political story here of what Fox News is doing. And the real political story is of militants of the right, like Tucker Carlson, who treat their base with contempt. Rupert Murdoch's interest is in maintaining, restoring, and increasing rates of profit for his capitalist friends. That's what his central political guiding star has always been. That's what his employees, uh, senior employees, are interested in doing. That, as well as building and boosting their own careers uh, and perhaps their own even political ambitions. That's why Ted Cruz said privately that he's actually relaxed, Republican senator in America, that he's actually relaxed about gay marriage, having opposed it so much publicly. They fan the flames of noxious politics, whether it's attacking gay people or worrying about migrants voting. Um, they fan the flames of noxious politics in order to give people something to talk about, something to be angry about that stops people being angry about their crappy healthcare and their crappy wages and their crappy school system that can't afford proper books for kids. So people's lives get worse and worse and they're turned on others. It's a totally cynical endeavor. You know, the whole stolen election lie that's often talked about by liberals through sort of mocking terms as just an obviously absurd, ridiculous claim that the 2020 election was stolen. Um, why does Donald Trump say it? Why do so many people believe it? Why does Tucker Carlson, a sort of uh, white supremacist, fan those flames when he knows it's rubbish? Because what it's really about is a claim that America's changing, its demography is changing, and people who aren't white are voting. And so the horror, the shock, the confusion that you see repeatedly, for example, that the state of Arizona could now vote Democratic, uh, that is a horror about different kinds of people voting, both people who've recently arrived and people who once, black people, were just knocked off the electoral rolls. Thanks everyone for watching this evening. Do click that link in the YouTube description box below to head to our podcast feed, leave a review and hit follow. We're fourth of all the podcasts in the UK and we want to overtake Joe Rogan. Can that happen? I'd like to think so. Probably not, but you never know. Come back to this channel tomorrow for another live stream from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.